Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. Today here in New York, we are at ENIAC Ventures offices. Uh, they are based near the Flatiron Building and in the middle of the Mecca of venture capital in New York. And uh, with me today, we have one of the two founding partners, uh, Hadley Harris. And his background is, as we will see shortly, very entrenched in, in the sort of deep tech. Um, and it loans itself very well for the focus of ENIAC, which is uh, a mobile-centric firm, and we'll hear a little bit more about that in a few. But as always, had let's start uh, at the very beginning. What did you study in college, and what did you do right afterwards? Sure, um, and, and thanks for having me, Carlos. I studied mechanical engineering, uh, basically, in high school. I, I loved, in grade school, I loved math, uh, loved physics, and, and decided when I went to college I definitely want to focus on engineering. Wasn't really sure the type, but knew that the favorite class I'd ever had was physics, so that seemed to be the, the closest aligned. Uh, by the time I was in my junior year, realized that I was much more interested in computer science, uh, but didn't want to go back and kind of retake all the classes and add an extra year. So started learning computer science mostly on my own, and then uh, after school became a, a developer for, for a couple companies. Excellent. And what was that, that first company? Uh, so the first job out of school was a IT group at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Uh, basically, it was kind of like IT consulting. I chose that because they had a pretty robust training program. It was about three months where they taught us uh, Java, C, and a bunch of kind of specific languages. Uh, that was also bubble time, so I graduated in 99. And, uh, you know, just showing how crazy times were, and that was all I knew, I think, I was there about a year and then they offered me something like a 40% raise and, and I thought that was crap so I left with the idea that I would join a startup and uh, ended up joining uh, kind of a larger uh, startup called Pegasystems uh, which was building CRM uh, kind of pro uh, business process uh, software and I became a developer there. Mm, cool. And any, um, any notable pieces of code or projects that you worked on at Pega that you want to share? It was really was boring it stuff. It was all back-end, like piecing together big other systems, proprietary systems at uh, healthcare businesses like United Healthcare, and then a bunch of financial institutions, uh, Banco Popular, Latin American Bank, and uh, Citibank were kind of the big ones that I built systems for. Banco Popular in Dominican Republic. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it was actually in San Juan, uh, San Juan. when okay. we were implementing it. Yeah. Wow, cool. Our careers might have crossed paths Maybe. a little bit. Yeah. So is it safe to say that after Pegasystems is when you moved away from sort of the hardcore engineering and into sort of the business side of, of technical businesses? Yeah, so I, I, was, I was focused on more the technical side, I think, for about four years after yeah. undergrad. The first couple years as kind of individual developer and then managing engineering teams. So I managed teams of kind of nine to 14 people as we built these systems. And I liked it, but I have to say the things that we were building were pretty boring. And, yeah. uh, and I had more of an interest in going to the consumer side. I think I also, at that point, kind of confused the boringness of the systems we were building with with the fact that I was that I was a builder and not on the business side. So I decided to go back to business school with the idea that I wanted to get more on the business side. And actually at that point I was even considering leaving technology. I, I, I didn't have the love that, that I that I regained afterwards. Once I got into school I spent uh, my summer at, uh, at Microsoft working as a product manager and then afterwards moved to Korea and was in corporate strategy for Samsung started to see kind of the opportunity to leverage the technical background that I had, but more on the business side where I wasn't coding 
every day. And then that's when I started really more getting into kind of what I like product being kind of halfway between the engineering side and the business side. Okay. So if we take a, a little bit of a pause there and, and sort of do a, a summary of the four or five years that you had in, in proper sort of hard tech engineering, um, doing what you said was more boring work and painting it with it the, the fact that you're very particular about startups that you meet today being robust in their engineering. What were the lessons that you learned that you would like to, to see in, in startups? Stuff that you picked up, the skills that you picked up over those four or five years that you use as a, a sort of litmus test, if, if you will, for, for companies that you meet today. I, I and my partners tend to be pretty uh, product focused in, in our evaluation of companies. And I think we have a lot of respect for the engineering aspects of businesses. One of my pet peeves is, you know, I'm an MBA, so I can make fun of MBAs. But, you know, these like two, you know, recent grad MBAs, neither of them have a technical background who want to start a company. And, and they talk about the, the engineering aspects of the businesses, you know, well, we'll just hire some engineers. And, and that's, I don't think, the way that great, great technical companies, great, great venture back companies are made. So I, I think kind of being in the trenches and, and building systems, granted, they were kind of back end things that no one ever saw the light, didn't see the light of day from a consumer point of view, gave me a lot of appreciation for how difficult it is to build these things. And uh, we didn't have the, some of the tools that folks have today. It gave me more of an appreciation of the importance of that, mm. that part of a business. And, and I think you'll see that with the teams that, that we fund, they tend, tend to be very strong technically. And when, and when you say the teams that you fund currently are very strong technically, how does a, an investor such as you and, and the rest of your team who are technically minded or at least technically proficient, how do you do DD so that a founder who might be listening to this is wondering um, how to best approach providing you with the right information and also how to organize whether the company is the right kind of technical proficiency so that you're interested? Sure. You know, part of it's just kind of looking at the background and talking through what they've built before. Part of it for our CTOs, we actually have a CTO interview that they do uh, with Pivotal Labs that we have a, a partnership for. So, you know, Pivotal uh, hires a lot of kind of high-end technical people. So so we do that to make sure that they kind of really get into the, the nitty-gritty and, and they know what they're talking about. At the end of the day, I mean, it really can be seen in the product that they built. I mean, you have kind of the engineering team, you have the product folks, and then you have design. And we're generally funding companies that have products and, and usually are in market. So although you want to make sure that they have kind of the background and, and they've done things well in building a product, you know, when you use it, uh, you can tell kind of that's, that's the end fruits of all that labor and, and expertise. So, so that's the, the best way that, that we have of, of really judging that. Excellent. And we go back to sort of the, where we were in your story. You, you had some time in Samsung, you had some time in Microsoft, and that kind of gave you the, the feeling for understanding of product. Was it shortly after then that you went to into venture, or, or how long were you in that sort of phase between those two companies? Yeah, so it was just a, it was about a year and a half total. Uh, actually, I was living in Korea, working for Samsung as as an American. They have a group there where they hire folks from kind of top European and, and U.S. business schools. And working in, at Samsung made me realize that I really didn't want to be in big organizations. Mm. Other than maybe the military, Samsung's about as structured of an organization as you can have, very top-down, you know, not a lot of entrepreneurial aspects to the business. I think they've tried to change that. This is 2006, so it has been quite a while. Uh, moved back to the States with the idea I was going to either uh, start something, join a startup, or, or do ventures so that I could get immersed in, in entrepreneurship. Ended up linking up with the guys at Charles River Ventures up in Boston, just 
happened to meet them. And at that time, I should say, one thing I, I got out of my experience in, in Korea, although it was 2006, they already had 4G networks there. Mm -hmm. So it, this is pre-iPhone, or the iPhone had just been announced as pre-App Store. Uh, but I saw the way that people were uh, consuming content on their phones with these like big screen uh, feature phones. And although people have been talking about this like mobile revolution that was going to happen, yeah. it never happened. And it was kind of almost like a joke in the venture community. But seeing what could be done with real connectivity, you know, it seemed obvious to me this was the next evolution of, so of were, computing. You were bullish on the phablet before there was such a thing as a phablet. I was, I was. Yeah, they, they, there was no such thing as a phablet. And, and the funny thing is the, when I say big screen, it's probably the equivalent of like an iPhone 4. <laughs> um, but people were watching uh, DMB, this local uh, like high streaming video that they had. People were uh, messaging. They were using emojis that, yeah. you know, this is before emojis had hit the Western world to any kind of extent. Uh, so seeing that, it, it seemed clear as coming. And then with the advent of the App Store, you know, when, when, when Steve Jobs announced that, it yeah. kind of saw it coming together. So I, I, I remember I walked into CRV and I was talking about the mobile, uh, you know, internet and how this was going to be next wave. And they're like, oh, that's funny. Um, but but uh, but said you know, <laughs> I mean uh -huh, they're like funny, well like, that's funny like we we've been hearing that for a while and yeah. you know we they had made some get me don't get me wrong they they had made some mobile investments and that was interesting but I don't think anyone kind of come in just focused on that yeah and yeah so we want to work here a little while you can help us with some investments maybe you, you figure out something next to do uh, and then they had just made an investment in a company called Flingo which was an early vir uh, voice recognition virtual assistant yeah. at a MIT. So ended up jumping over there first, just as a as a uh, consultant, kind of helping out with some some business model things. And then ended up joining and then running uh, BD and, and marketing over the next four years. Cool. It's funny you say the, the the sort of future looking nature of certain markets like mobile in Korea, then coming back and then seeing that because when you look at the origins of the venture industry, the first VCs left the semiconductor industry and then started funds, knowing full well. Yep. What was yep. going to be coming down the pipe? If if today you would have to identify a sort of geography in the world that is probably ahead of its time, so any any person who wanted to sort of see what's coming down the pipe, what would you reckon? I think it would be a mix of a couple places, but Korea would still be very high. I think there's it's a very forward-thinking populace. You look at a lot of stuff that's going on there. I think it's a good place to go, and you know generally, I think you know. Uh, San Francisco, Silicon Valley. I mean, the, the, the tech industry has become very forward thinking in terms of what they're trying. I think it would be a blend of those things. That having been said, I think we're, we're getting into a time period where people can do cool stuff all around the world. I've heard, I've heard a, a, a case, a sort of maybe a contrarian case to the Koreas of the world, that Africa and, and or other sort of emerging markets where there's different ways of people doing peer-to-peer -peer payments or different ways of doing ad hoc mobile networks that that's where the genesis of, of next wave of, of innovations are coming from. What, what do you what do you reckon? Yeah, I think some will. I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the fact that Africa was able to do kind of a technology jump and, and didn't have some of the, the older technology infrastructure is an opportunity. I think you're going to see things come out of Africa. You're going to see a lot of stuff coming out of Asia. You're going to see things come out of Europe. And and um, in North America and basically anywhere. I mean, the great thing about now is that there are tools out there where anyone who can code can build something pretty robust. And that wasn't true five years ago, and it certainly wasn't true 10 years ago. So I think you're going to see a lot more democratization of, of really cool technologies and, and products. 
I think the, the challenge over the next, you know, five, ten years will be uh, getting the information out to those folks that they know kind of they have the, the ecosystem similar as you guys are, are building in Europe where you, you can work with folks that have done it before. You, can, you don't have to always make the same mistakes. But there's always, there will be these like Zuckerberg types that will build something crazy, you know, out of Africa or Southeast Asia that, you know, just have a unique those are the types of those kind of unique views are not something you get from advisors and investors. You know, those are things that people come up with themselves and people tell others, tell them they're crazy and they do it. So I'm, I'm fully expecting some really amazing stuff to come out of, you know, places that traditionally haven't spawned a lot of technology. Hmm, excellent. So maybe, and I want to come back to talk a little bit about your time at Vendo and at Thumb, but maybe before we do that, talking a little bit about ENIAC uh, as a mobile centric, Fund. Um, understanding obviously the background that you have, it would be a na- sort of a natural extension of that background. But in today's world, where so much of the startups out there almost are required to have a mobile angle, is there still space for for a very mobile centric, or is it, or is it now judging by some of the investments that you have, like SoundCloud and Airbnb, really just part and parcel of every startup's proposition and mobile side? What, what's your view on on sort of the any yeah, context. no, it's a great question because uh, I think a couple of things have changed since we started. One is the norm is to be mobile first. Uh, when we started out, that that was kind of a a, a niche thing, and it depended on what you're doing. Uh, so certainly, more things are are mobile first. Uh, also, the mobile ecosystem, what we consider mobile, has changed. I mean, we consider mobile it mobile if your primary vision is leveraging the proliferation of, of mobile connected devices. Yeah, whether that be smartphones wearables, drones, sensors, robots, whatever it is. So it's kind of this post-desktop world. There's still a lot of businesses that I don't consider mobile first that, you know, you can think about like someone building a new type of database. Like, granted, a lot of their stuff will be used in mobile devices, but it's not built on that proliferation of devices. Uh, And there's still a lot of kind of desktop first software. They tend to be more enterprise things. There's not as much consumer, although you do see it here and there, something that might make sense more for a desktop than, than a, a smartphone. So from that perspective, we see a lot less. And then having focused now on this since uh, and invested in this space since 2010, it, it also, we draw entrepreneurs who are building mobile first. So we don't get a lot of kind of uh, non-mobile entrepreneurs coming to us or, or getting introduced to them. So it's, it's, it's kind of become a, a self-serving kind of thing. Mm. Maybe this is a, um, an opportunity to, to brag a little bit about what you guys bring to the table. But, you know, back in the day in 2007-06, before sort of the way that carriers have become dumb pipes these days, uh, a large portion of the relationships that venture funds have had mobile experience brought to the table were connections into those carriers, connections into... The, the decision makers within carriers. But that's changed so much since then. What kind of leverage can a founder get by coming through and having uh, ENIAC on their cap table in terms of the mobile experience, maybe in terms of relationships, or maybe what are the, 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 the gates that have still to fully open in the mobile world that you can open for them? Yeah, you know, so we have four general partners. We've all known each other now for 19 years, and, you know, we we're good friends, and we we're all engineers at Penn together and we always say that we we all bring different things we call kind of the swarm approach Uh, a lot of my background is in consumer uh, growth so user uh, growth whether that be um, from a product perspective or or a marketing perspective I'm kind of a hybrid of the two my partner Vic is is very product focused UI UX really gets in the weeds in terms of user experience 
my partner uh, Nahal is really great at kind of BD, has this amazing network and knows kind of everyone. So you need to, especially you're a B2B product, you need to sell to someone. You're a consumer product, you need uh, a partnership with someone. He, he's your guy. And then Tim, we, we call the fixer. He's an ex-venture lawyer and entrepreneur, and he's the guy that kind of comes in and cleans up any kind of problems that you need at the end of the day from a corporate law, IP, any kind of issue like that. He also has a great background on uh, on the B2B side, having started three enterprise companies. So we all bring a, something a little different. Unlike the traditional VC, uh, we don't assign you know partners to companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Having kind of dealt with VCs a lot and always had great experiences, that said, we were always dealing with one partner at the fund. We all work with all of our companies depending on the needs of the company. And then How do you manage that? I mean, Reshma and I at SeedCamp, and obviously with some of the other team members, uh, do the same kind of structure. Yeah. Uh, but I'm just curious how, how you guys manage it between the four of you. Does one person effectively work as a team lead for the company and then kind of says, hey, um, take a look at this. This is, this is an issue here or there. Or, or is it just pretty much all of you meet with the companies at once? We hand it off. So we have a pretty robust uh, Relate IQ system. And there, at any one time, companies do have an internal champion that's just the partner who's you know, keeping an eye on them and, and the first point of contact. But we encourage them always to send their inquiries to all of us so we get you know, to partners at ENIAC. Mm-hmm. And we'll switch who the champion is depending on the needs of the company. You know, When they're building the product, it might be Vic. When they're scaling the product, it might be me. And then when it's time for them to do partnerships, it might be Nahal. Yeah. Um, when, when shit hits the fan, sorry for uh, swearing it, you know, it might be Tim because he, he can step in and really help with that. So um, we, we do have kind of one point of contact internally, but externally we encourage them to kind of reach out to all of us. Mm. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And so if we go back to sort of where we left off, uh, Flingo, which eventually was acquired, and then you moved on to, to Thumb. Maybe just what, what happened there and then the moment when you guys decided, hey, let's start Inyak. Interestingly, we were I, we were working on ENIAC in in parallel with both Vlingo and Thumb. So I was it was almost like my passion project and nights and weekends. So you know, primarily I was I was focused on on the the product companies that that I was with and and being part of those teams. And you know, it was transparent; everyone knew what I was doing. But a lot of nights and weekends, I was spending my time with my my now partners building that up. And you know, basically, we were seeing all these great uh, companies early on. We were all advising companies and doing angel investing. Uh, we were good friends you know, from undergrad, so decided why don't we pull this together and what would that look like? We put together a, a tiny fund, you know, one and a half million dollars and started investing 25, 50K in companies. We ended up uh, building that into you know, full portfolio and then since then I've raised two more funds and each fund's gotten bigger and it's gotten a, a little more institutional, but I, I don't think we've We've lost our roots of kind of scrappiness and, and you know working more as entrepreneurs than necessarily VCs. Um, you know we see ourselves almost as as co-founders in these companies, and that's what we really enjoy. I, I don't think that we'll ever get to the point where we're investing in later stage kind of growth rounds as the initial entry point, uh, just because that's not where our passion is, and I don't know if we'd be as helpful as, as we are now. And on the on the topic of being helpful, I think part of being helpful is getting information from the founder that is clear for you to, to have action on. Yeah. But on the flip side, founders sometimes are, especially when they're pitching or when they're going for investment, is, is divulging too much about what they do or do not know. And 
in your experience, what is the best way that founders can address the, the, that subject between, hey, Hadley, I actually don't know the answer to that question and not coming across like ignorant or that they don't have it together or they didn't do the research versus saying, hey, Hadley, look, you've, you've, you've worked with tons of companies. What do you think? Like, I would love to get your thoughts without it counting against them in terms of what you perceive of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I generally think that being honest is the way to go. You know, when I think about meeting with entrepreneurs who maybe have started a couple companies and they're and they're, you know, have done it before and new entrepreneurs, a lot of times it's the entrepreneurs who have a lot of experience and have started companies and had success. They're more likely to admit they don't know the answer to things. And and I think that that's something you want to get to. You want to you want to be as open as possible about what you know, what you don't know, and you know it might be I don't know the answer to this. I have this thesis, and we're this is what we're going to do to figure it out. I mean that's the kind of answer you want to hear versus just kind of throwing out you know a best guess or something that comes to the top of your head as 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 it is something you know. You know on the flip side, if you know if you haven't done the work and you know you're asking about their target market and they don't know the answers to things it's not a good sign if they haven't done that you know but but in general i think having kind of thoughtful answers admitting when they know something versus they don't and then uh being open to input i mean i i think most great companies have a lot of smart people around them giving advice and uh and you want to be in a position where you're able to synthesize that uh accept the advice figure out which ones to take and which ones not to and, and kind of be thoughtful about how you do that as opposed to kind of having everything set in your mind, especially in areas that maybe isn't aligned with your background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very useful. At least it's a starting point for so people to have conversations with you. Generally speaking, a lot of founders today feel quite paralyzed if they don't have amazing metrics. It, it seems that today the, the sort of flavor of the day is uh, MRR and um, and just hitting a magic number before an, a VC is interested. Maybe you can share kind of what, what makes a company interesting for you. If it, if it is a number, then what is that number? If it isn't a number, then what are the typical attributes that you look for? Because you are very early stage and you are very mobile centric. Yeah, it depends a lot on the type of company. I'll break them up into two just for, uh, for simplicity. I mean, on the B2B side, it's easier to go earlier in B2B. Uh, you know, we would like companies to have built a product or be very close to having a finished product uh, where they're already selling into customers who have basically, that we can talk to who can say, hey, this, this serves a need for us. It doesn't necessarily see, need to be in market, but they need to have built enough so that we can see they can execute on product. And then on the customer's side, they don't need to be paying, but we need to be able to talk to people there that can say, I would pay for this. It really solves the problem. And that problem, we can then look and, and know that it's broad and it's a big market that they're selling into. So in some ways, I, I feel like B2B is, is easier to evaluate uh, from, our, from the point of view of the investor. Consumer, on the other hand, w- which I tend to be more excited about, but I do a little bit of both, and, and we as a firm do 50-50. I just happen to be a little more consumer focused. Uh, it's really hard. Uh, it's uh, Anyone who, who thinks that they can predict what consumer product will do well, I think is kidding themselves or much smarter than me. I mean, it's really hard to predict. So we like them to be in market in some manner, and we like to be able to look at the usage patterns. 
Again, it depends on the type of product. There's a big difference between something that might be a, a chat app and, and something that's more kind of media consumption oriented. But in general, you want high retention, you know, over 50% of users coming back in month two. Uh, we'd like a high level of engagement. This again, depends a lot on what kind of app it is, but kind of, we usually look at kind of comparing the daily active users, the monthly active users and having that be, you know, in the 20% or higher. And then it doesn't need to be a huge user base. Actually, the, the user base itself doesn't matter as much as kind of seeing some semblance of organic growth. You know, I think when a lot of entrepreneurs ask, well, how many users do I need? And I don't know if other um, investors are giving them that, but that seems like the wrong question. It's more kind of what are the attributes of the user base I have that, that you care about? So some, some semblance of growth, as long as it's enough so that it's representative, it's not, you know, 100 people that, that they know, uh, as long as it's representative kind of in the, in the tens of thousands of users, that's something that would get us excited. Cool. No, that's very helpful, actually. Being that you lived in the future and then came back to the past when you were in Korea and then yeah. you moved back here to Boston, if you could pick one technology from the future, from science fiction or from any other movie that you might have seen or read a book uh, and that you could bring back today that you'd invest in two seconds if somebody walked in the door right now with, what would it be? I'm really interested in, in AI in general. I mean, I think anyone who is able to build, uh, you know, machines that are close to humans in, in terms of their ability to figure out problems. I mean, this, I'm giving you a very vague answer, but that's the type of thing that I think is most exciting. I think kind of uh, AI and combine it with robotics is, is going to be the most, you know, is going to be the next mobile and, and it's going to change the way the world works. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, socioeconomical, you know, s society issues that we'll have to deal with, but just in terms of being an investor, I, I think it's going to be really exciting. Time to read up on my Isaac Asimov. Huh? Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks for your time, uh, Hadley, and uh, we look forward to having you over in London next time you're over there. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having me on the show and, and appreciate everything you guys are doing. I, I think it's a great organization. Really appreciate visiting you in London uh, this summer and look forward to coming back again soon. Cool. All right, guys, until next time. Bye.